From the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we air part one of our interview with pastor and author Kat Banakas. We discuss her recent book, Bubble Girl, An Irreverent Journey of Faith, which is both a memoir and an introduction to theology. Later on the broadcast, I offer my two cents about the HBO crime drama, True Detective. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Catherine Cat Banakis. Reverend Banakis is an Episcopal priest in the Chicago area and is the author of the recent book, Bubble Girl, An Irreverent Journey of Faith, published in 2013 by Chalice Press. In addition to her work for the church, Reverend Banakis has had a long career in the nonprofit sector, working as a lobbyist, a financial officer, and a fundraiser. She chronicles those career shifts as part of her book. Reverend Cat Banakis, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I very much enjoyed the book, and as I was reading it over the last couple of weeks, I tried to describe it to uh, some people, and I found that I had a really hard time fitting it into a genre. Uh, I wonder, as we begin, if you'd be willing to tell us a bit about what you were trying to accomplish with the book and how the structure of the book works towards that end. Sure. When I was in seminary, I had... uh, what I think of as a falling in love story with two dead white German theologians, Karl Barth and Karl Rahner. And I think of it as a made to December romance, that here I was, this young girl in seminary, and then there were these dead German theologians who had somehow seen into my soul and were bringing up questions of the meaning of life and free will and how it is that we engage in the questions that are eternal about what is good and what is bad and what happens after we die that I had never quite seen in print in quite that way. And when I began talking about these questions with my family and friends outside of seminary, they too had had these questions. And as I learned more and more about the academic discipline of theology and the incredibly vast disagreements throughout religious history, I was absolutely compelled. And I wanted to offer a way in which church-going Christians and people not religious would be able to engage in these same questions. And because our lives unfold as narrative, and the Judeo-Christian tradition is a particularly storied tradition, I wanted to do it in story form. And so the book is in the structure of a spiritual memoir, but each chapter introduces a different doctrine of uh, Christian thought and history and theology and provides an opportunity to present those questions in a conversational reflective form so that it can be engaged and that the opportunity to be part of that disagreement that is so rich in religious history uh, becomes democratized in some way and isn't just ensconced in the academy because it really doesn't belong there. Well, I'm really, I'm I'm thankful for you to give that comprehensive of, of an answer. I, 
I, I, I think that your, your description of falling in love with a couple of dead white theologians and then telling that story of, of trying to sort of learn about the faith through their eyes but also through your own journey is, is exactly what I got from the book. I, I found it to be both a, a sort of an interesting uh, introduction to theological concepts, but also it was very emotionally transparent. It was you, you, had, you had a willingness to sort of share uh, your own struggles along your life, your career path, and your journey of faith in a way that I found to be very refreshing. I think sometimes people who are in the ministry get misclassified as always having had the answers. Is, do you think that's a fair way of, of describing it? I think that that's an outside perception. Uh, living within the religious structures, that certainly isn't my experience of other faith leaders, um, and certainly not my experience. Well, and so when when you're when you made the decision to talk about this experience, um, it it wasn't exactly clear to me getting through the book. The book takes you from your your call, if you will, uh, and it sort of moves back and forth between various parts of your life, but then ends with your being ordained. Mm -hmm. Was this book written, I'm assuming, after your ordination, but sort of at what point in your ministry did did this book get published? The book was published uh, about a year after my priesting. Okay. Um, It was drafted in what I think of as my wilderness year, the year that I was living in California uh, between seminary and prior to starting to work uh, in a church and and finish the process of ordination. And for me, that experience was incredibly disorienting. Um, To be no longer in the structure of a strict career path or in uh, graduate school or college, and I was in this in-between time, and I was in a landscape that was foreign to me, uh, and I was in a culture that was in some ways foreign to me, and that caused one of these emotional and faith crises that so many of us go through, and so I started drafting the book in that time uh, to try to Um, ground myself in some ways in what I had learned and where I might be going. And it was important to me to be as uh, emotionally transparent as possible in order to normalize the experiences that so many of us go through as a faith journey and as a life journey. And I am a person who lives with some amount of low-grade depression and anxiety, as many of us do. And I was apprehensive about being that candid in a book, both in terms of my professional development and um, personal and all of that. But I have to say that the experience of it has been phenomenal insofar as sharing oneself invites the same thing back. And so what happened when I shared this story was that my congregants, my friends, my family members began sharing with me their deeper stories that I had never been privy to before. And it ended up being a vehicle for a phenomenal exchange that might never have happened if I hadn't been as self-disclosing as I was. Now, at any point in that process, as you were sort of doing the risk of transparency, but also as people were beginning to open up to you, I imagine that 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 was both sort of exciting, but also uh, I'm an introvert. And so I could imagine that that would also be somewhat overwhelming to suddenly have people sharing very intimate parts of their life with me. 
then again, I'm not a pastor. And so I imagine that sharing intimate parts of their life with you is part of the deal with being a pastor. So it seems, if I'm hearing you correctly, that your gesture of openness sort of created a space where others could begin to um, to open up as well towards you, and that actually kind of helped you with your your transition into being a pastor. Do I have that correct? It absolutely helped in the transition to being a pastor, and it and it certainly helped in the transition to deeper relationship. You know, being a clergy person, one is invited into the deepest transitions and experiences of people's lives. And it is both one of the joys of the work of uh, being a clergy person. It's draining in its own right, um, but it's also almost addictive that when you are invited into the 30 minutes after a baby is born in the hospital and you're asked to be right there and you are one of the first calls or emails that comes when someone dies and that people want to share these moments of transition and crisis and to be heard, it's an incredibly um, powerful experience of being invited and wanted and needed to be present in that place. And so that's been, uh, as part of my journey into work in the church, one of the most joyful and um, honoring and heady experiences. But also, as, as I talk about in the book, uh, in that year of being not in an official role in the church, it was really disorienting to me to be in church and not be an intern or a chaplain or something in which people sought me out to tell me things. And instead, I was one of the unwashed masses. I was there like everyone else. And no one particularly wanted to know me or tell me wonderful, interesting things about themselves. And so that was a really humbling experience to just be present and to be just a congregant. And like you, I'm an introvert. And so it is so great for me in group situations to have a role. It is my job here to be the clergy person, or it is my job here to do X, Y, Z, and then step into that role. But having the experience of just being an anonymous person in the pew um, was a real relearning for me. And similarly, it caused me to have to think really hard about why I wanted to be ordained. Was it just so that I would be recognized. And I, I certainly didn't go into the work thinking that, but it was a really helpful reframing for me of why do I want to do this? And, and what is God calling me to in this role? Well, in, in some of the conversations that we've had outside of the context of this interview, you've described yourself to me as a bivocational pastor. And I wonder if you'd take a moment and explain what that term means. When, when somebody says they're, they're bivocational, what, what is that? In short, it means that I've got a day job. Uh, the longer description of it, though, is that uh, I am a person who feels called to many things. And w we are all called to many things, right? We are called to be um, professionals and students and partners and parents. And we all experience many calls in our lives. Um, I feel called to be a clergy person. And I also feel called to do the work that I do in management consulting for nonprofits. 
And sometimes our calls are very overt, you know, like Samuel uh, gets called by God when he is a uh, young apprentice to the priest, you know, Samuel, Samuel, this is God. Uh, That was not my experience and never has been of calls. And the call for me to be a person who has multiple jobs um, has been situational and economic. It is not uh, headline news that fewer and fewer people are attending religious institutions and participating in them. And as a result, there are fewer and fewer full-time jobs in different geographies for clergy people. And to be at uh, the congregation that I wanted to learn to be a priest at and to be in the Chicagoland area where my family is, um, there were uh, different costs I had to make. And so I am part-time. I am 10 hours a week at the church, and I am full-time for the consulting firm. And it's a phenomenal, wonderful life. And all of it for me is my call to ministry to be a Christian and a baptized person in the world and to live out that ministry in multiple forums, no matter whose clock I'm on. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, our guest today is the Reverend Kat Banakis, author of Bubble Girl and A Reverent Journey of Faith. We're discussing that faith journey and how those twists and turns in her own life have helped inform her work as a pastor. So we were just talking about the way in which uh, the sort of two hats that you wear, the the hat of of an Episcopal priest and the hat of a person working in the nonprofit sector, that that has been a very uh, good arrangement for you. I wonder... For for people that that are that are thinking about possibly going into the priesthood, who are thinking about uh, working in some sort of pastoral function, um, what are the rewards and what what are the places where, if you will, the the Venn diagrams overlap, and you you find that 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 whether you're in the workplace or whether you're in in the in the in the pulpit, you're you're finding that you're basically doing the same thing. Yeah, I'd like to answer that with a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was working in a, a nonprofit a couple of years ago, uh, I was bemoaning to my youngest sister, who is heavily in the evangelical tradition, um, that I wasn't working in a church and my education was going to waste and what was I doing? And uh, she was 17 or 18 at the time and sighed in the way that only a 17-year-old can do. And she said, oh, Catherine, you have an entire office of coworkers. Be their pastor. And for me, that was one of those aha moments of, oh, this is just a change in perspective. I have a congregation where I get to do ministry day in and day out. It's called my workplace. And that reframed what I was doing day to day to be my ministry. And I think that in some ways, the church does a disservice by de-emphasizing what happens to us in the moment of initiation, whether that's baptism, uh, a born-again experience, an adult conversion, but that what happens in the moment of initiation and recommitment that happens day to day in those of us who live a life in a faith tradition is that each of us is called 
to be a priest in Christ's church. And the authority that is granted in the moment of initiation and baptism is to be Christ's hands and heart in the world in whatever setting we find ourselves in. And the organized church does that in some ways brilliantly. But most of us spend the vast majority of our lives with our colleagues and coworkers. We don't even spend the majority of our lives, those of us who are employed full time, with our family or friends. We spend most of our lives uh, between the ages of 25 and 75 or so um, in an office setting in some capacity. And that is the place in which we do our ministry. And for me, that's incredibly thrilling. Um, Education for the church is fantastic. One gets to learn Bible and theology and philosophy and better public speaking and what it is to listen properly. And there are fantastic vocational and and more theoretical um, trainings that happen in that space. But the work of Christ does not happen in the academy, nor does it necessarily happen in church settings. It happens in all of our individual avocations and vocations and day-to-day interactions outside of those walls. And the amount of time that any of us, even those of us who, who work in the church, actually spend inside a religious building is minuscule. And so uh, I would say to somebody who's considering ordination that it's fantastic and it is a it is an honor and a gift. And if you are called to that as a specific thing, fabulous. Go through the process. It's long in in any mainline church. It's a, it's a minimum two-year, generally six- to eight-year process. So if that's what you'd like, go for it. Um, but if what you are seeking is a deeper way to live out your faith journey, then by all means, live it. Well, help to paint that picture for me. So you are in the workplace, and you, you, your sister has encouraged you to be a, a sort of force for evangelical good in the workplace. Did that immediately sort of turn around? Uh, you, you began handing out tracts, I imagine, and, uh, and dunking people in the water fountain. Or what, what actually did it look like? I did. I was, I was handing out tracts. I was asking every person I encountered about their relationship with Jesus. No, uh, that is completely facetious. Um, what happened was uh, that I engaged in what I call the magic prayer formula, which is saying to God, uh, w- presenting before God a question or a petition, and then working your butt off and waiting to be surprised. So the prayer that I offered to God was, God, show me how to treat this workplace as my congregation. And then I started doing all different wacky things. I went up into the attic of our office and brought down um, this sort of Barca lounger Ikea chair and put it in my cubicle and set up some little candles and some tea, um, thinking that like maybe there would be deeper chaplaincy interactions with this. Uh, that never got put to use, but it was a start. And then uh, our bookkeeper quit. 
And I had been doing uh, sort of low-level fundraising, and the head of the organization said, would you be willing to help us uh, do the books and uh, oversee finance for the organization? Do you have the bandwidth? And I don't do great math, so this was questionable on their part, but I said, sure. I was waiting to be surprised by God, so what could be a Magnificat revelation like somebody asking you to manage the books? Absolutely, I could do this. And I chose to use that annual budgeting process as uh, we had to put it together our budgets for the coming year, and each department had to um, submit their different budgets. And it had always been a very closed-door, obscure process before. All of the managers were just told, here's what your budget is, and here's what you can use the different line items for. And I thought, well, if this were a congregation, um, I would want it to be a participatory process of how a decision gets made. And so I brought all of the managers in one by one, and I said, here is the budget. We have to make this amount of cuts this year. And historically, your piece of the pie has been this amount. How would you like to manage your budget? And some of the department managers came back and said, I want to cut expenses in these ways. Others said that they wanted to reallocate staff. But it was important to me that the cuts and the process be participatory if this was my congregation. And uh, I oversaw HR as part of this process. And one of my friends and colleagues uh, was going through a difficult time in her family life. and. As HR, you receive the um, paid time off requests each day. And I received over email a paid time off request uh, for a family-related condition. And this is not best HR policy. I will say this from the front end. But I knew this woman, and I knew what she was going through. And so when I got the uh, paid time off request, I called her and I said, are you alone today? And she said, I am, but you know, it's fine. I said, would it be OK if I came and sat with you? And she's very private and said, well, I guess that's fine. And in that moment, I, as the HR director, chose to handle it as an opportunity for companionship and chaplaincy by going over and sitting with her while she was in a family crisis setting. And those were my own choices of how I treated my job and my work there. And uh, I am a very repetitive exerciser. I swim laps. I, I run almost the same path every day. And started a process at that time of counting the laps that I swam by uh, praying for each person in my office, going around the office, and keeping track of my laps by them. And so, and doing the same thing running. And little by little, all of these things uh, helped me to fall so deeply in love and in compassion with my coworkers that, of course, they became my congregation. And these are not things that were specific to me as a person who's been theologically trained. These were practices and decisions that I made as a person of faith who wanted to engage my faith and my love of humanity in that setting. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. 
Our guest is pastor and writer Kat Banakis, the author of Bubble Girl and a Reverent Journey of Faith. Reverend Banakis is a bivocational pastor who divides her time between work in the church and in the world of nonprofit fundraising. Her book, Bubble Girl, also plays two roles. It's both a spiritual memoir and an introduction to theology. You can find out more about Reverend Banakis and her book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is pastor and writer Kat Banakis, the author of Bubble Girl and a Reverent Journey of Faith. Reverend Banakis is a bivocational pastor, which means she divides her time between work in the church and work in the nonprofit world. Her book, Bubble Girl, also plays two roles. It's both a spiritual memoir and an introduction to theology. You can find out more about Reverend Banakis and her book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If I'm, if I'm hearing what you're saying about making the workplace into a, a place of chaplaincy, a, a place of, of kind of pastoral sensitivity, it, it almost strikes that classical seminary uh, distinction between theological knowledge and pastoral knowledge. You can have an entire head full of the doctrines of the church and not know how to act at a bedside. Or you can be a very sensitive, uh, empathetic person, but not understand the, the sort of distinctive historical aspects of, of, of the life of the theological mind. So what I'm hearing you saying is that in this time, as you were, as you were also hungering for theological knowledge, you were sort of banking up uh, pastoral expertise. And I know that you didn't think of it that way. This wasn't like, okay, I'm going to check this off in the box. But it sounds like you were exercising some muscles that maybe have helped you then as you stepped into the pastorate. Have I heard that correctly? I think that those experiences helped me as I stepped into the pastorate. And it also presented an opportunity for me uh, to see education and chaplaincy and pastoral knowledge much more broadly, such that when I was presented with opportunities to work in different settings, um, I had a different sense of myself as a pastor. And in the settings now when I'm doing uh, audits of workplaces and management consulting and, and working with big data in different ways in the way that my firm does, for me, it's that constant challenge of how do we do this as ministry? And I love the intellectual um, puzzle on that of, of how you frame it as ministry and as presence. And, and in some ways, I think that that challenge and that wrestling makes me a better pastor because I am constantly forced to do evangelism in English. When I am in the pulpit, of course, I use the language of the church. But when I am not in the pulpit, uh, I choose to never wear a collar. And um, my challenge is to do evangelism and do Christ's work in the world in regular conversation and regular interactions. And I do not feel, both because of my personality, uh, because of the tradition that I'm in, um, for a whole variety of reasons, I do not have a burden of conversion. I am not in the world to win hearts for Christ and in order to increase the number of people in churches. 
my burden as a priest, um, as a Christian, as a person whose life has been changed by living within a faith tradition is to be more compassionate in the world and to work uh, towards understanding and towards peace and against vengeance. And that does not require uh, the language of saying the name of Christ out loud. So if I'm hearing you correctly, when you're working in your professional capacity in the nonprofit world, when you're, when you're out doing big data analysis and all, you don't necessarily foreground the fact that you're an ordained Episcopal priest. Have I heard that correctly? That is correct. Okay. Uh, are, there, are there ever times where, and I'm just fascinated by this question of the kind of the mix of the secular and, and the sacred, um, are there times when, when, you, when you intentionally sort of obscure that fact because it would make you less likely to be well-received in a particular situation? Sure, absolutely. Uh, our clients uh, where I work are a whole variety of nonprofit organizations, and it would not be appropriate nor helpful for me to disclose my religious tradition. Uh, and if asked directly, certainly I will say it. Um, if I'm dealing sometimes with a religious organization, I'm, I may bring it up. Um, and that's true also the first time I meet someone socially. Uh, one does not necessarily lead with that in every setting. Sometimes it's appropriate. Sometimes it isn't. And um, th there are times in which it's helpful and times in which it invites stories back that one wants to hear. And then there are times in which that would actually uh, prevent someone from being candid and being present and being self-disclosing about what they need or are interested in. Um, sometimes I think that it would be funny to have a, a running dialogue of what everyone is thinking at any one point. Um, but the clergy in particular and, and those of us who have spent a long time in the church, I think, have uh, a unique sort of mental track that's running at different points that, like, when I'm really frustrated with a client, um, I will have angry Bible verses in my head, you know, bear one another's burdens, we bear one another's burdens, you know, that sort of thing. Or if, if you're really frustrated on deadline, I think a little Julian of Norwich all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. The Lord does not give us more than we can handle. You know, any of those sorts of things, which so in my private monologue, I am very much having an experience of a theologically trained person who grew up in the church. But if you're on the other end of the phone with me, all you hear is the, the person who's on the other end of the phone at the firm. Well, Catherine Banakis, I've very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much, David. Reverend Catherine Banakis is an Episcopal priest in the Chicago area and is the author of the recent book, Bubble Girl, An Irreverent Journey of Faith, published in 2013 by Chalice Press. In addition to her work for the church, Reverend Banakis has had a long career in the nonprofit sector, working as a lobbyist, a financial officer, and a fundraiser. She chronicles these career shifts as part of her book, she joined us in the studio here in Chicago. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part one of our interview with Catherine Banakis. You'll be able to listen to part two of the interview next week at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com.
As I've been mentioning over the last few shows, we're growing our distribution options. Now, we've always been available on iTunes, and you've also been able to find us for the last several months on Stitcher Smart Radio and SoundCloud. But starting this week, we've begun distribution through PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. So over the next few weeks, we'll be working to put our back catalog of shows onto the PRX platform. Now, PRX is absolutely the best place to find all sorts of great shows produced for public radio. So if you know any hardcore public radio nerds, tell them where to find us. And one last note about iTunes. If you have a minute, it would really help us out if you'd go to our iTunes page and write a review for the show. You would not believe how much that one small act helps us. Also, if you feel like giving us a rating, I hear five stars is a very popular choice, so let me suggest that. As always, thank you for listening and for taking the time to tell your friends about the show. Every week I watch our download numbers go up and up and up, and that's all because of folks like you helping to spread the word. We love you for it, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out. You can go back and explore just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, I'll tell you what I think about the new HBO crime drama that everybody's been talking about, True Detective. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. As you know, we produce this show with an incredibly small staff. Most weeks, that staff consists of me and the amazingly talented Katie Scroggin. For the past couple of months, we've also been helped out with production by Kim Tron, who does a lot of our editing, and by our summer intern, Mary Morrison. You'll be hearing more from Mary in just a moment. But because we're a small staff, we're always looking for good material to put on the air. This week, because Katie's been traveling, I'm covering the producer piece. But that means that in a moment, I'm basically going to introduce myself and then start talking again. And that's just weird. So I'm issuing a call to arms. If you're out there listening, it's probably because you're interested in the kind of things that we talk about. Faith and culture stuff. More importantly, you're probably listening to this because you also like radio. So here's my challenge. If you like faith and culture and you like radio, then maybe you'll like making radio for us. Things Not Seen is looking for producers, for folks who can take an idea about some aspect of faith and culture and turn it into a six to eight minute monologue. As far as I'm concerned, the topics and options are wide open. You listen, so you know the stuff we talk about. Have you always wanted to be a voice on the radio? Now's your chance. Now, I've been doing this long enough to know that Really, realistically, probably only three or four of you will actually want to do this. So for those folks in particular, here's the next step. Send me an email. Uh, you can send it to uh, the email address 
host at thingsnotseenradio.com, or tweet me at Dalt Radio, and we'll get the ball rolling from there. And now, in the spirit of getting new voices on the radio, here's our intern, Mary Morrison. Thanks. Now here's David Dalt to tell you what he thinks about True Detective. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I set aside a few evenings and binge-watched the recent HBO series, True Detective. I realized we were a little late to the party. A lot of ink has already been spilled in singing the praises of this show, and if you've already seen the season, I'm certain you've already formed your own opinions. But if you haven't seen the show yet, this might be a good time for me to say that there are spoiler alerts ahead. The series struck me as a very interesting take on the hard-boiled crime drama. Two homicide cops catch a bizarre murder case, which turns out to be linked to a string of bizarre murder cases, and in the process of following up on the leads that they find, they stumble across what appears to be the devil himself. Matthew McConaughey plays Rust Cole, the cop with a dark, shadowy past, who seems to be living out an equally shadowy, dark present. He's a misanthrope, a pessimist, and, as we come to find out, a philosophical nihilist and metaphysical anarchist. McConaughey's Cole is convinced that human existence is a mistake, a gross categorical error in the universe, and he speaks as if he's resigned himself to living out his part in a miserable, meaningless charade. Woody Harrelson's character of Marty Hart, in contrast, is a family man, When we first meet him, he has a family and a rugged pragmatism about things, but we soon discover that he's a saucer full of secrets. He's living like a gambler who's just mortgaged his house to pay for poker chips, and he's just bet everything on a lousy hand. Now, both these men are lost souls. They're foul-mouthed and disreputable, and they're the good guys in the series. So it's easy to say that the show is definitely gritty and has lots of eerie atmosphere. It's set in the parishes of the Louisiana Delta, and it seeks to evoke a weird mystery in its terrain. However, speaking as someone who actually grew up in the Deep South, I think that the show's creators didn't quite manage to capture the real flavor of gothic southern weirdness that exists in that part of the country. For me, the show failed to capture the dread, the foreboding, and the oppression that really does exist around the Mississippi Delta. Contrast this with a show like The Walking Dead, which is also set in the Deep South. The Walking Dead's characters and atmosphere feel like the weird gothic South. True Detective, in comparison, feels like someone's idea of what the weird gothic South is. Now, don't let this give you the impression that I didn't like the show. I did, very much. McConaughey and Harrelson deliver mesmerizing performances. And I mean mesmerizing here in a very technical way. Both the writing and the performances plant deep, suggestive imagery, suggestions about broader themes and plots that are lurking just off-camera, plots that have not yet been realized but may well blossom in later seasons. The biggest plot point to be developed, of course, is when the show hints at dark, supernatural forces lurking behind the scenes of these murders. When True Detective gestures in this direction, it reminded me strongly of another fantastic HBO show, Carnival, which had a similar sense of cosmic battle between good and evil and a similar cast of anti-heroes with dark secrets. Most of this first season of True Detective is arranged around a flashback structure, and that really works to build a narrative momentum and intrigue. 
I was sad to see that the show creators abandoned the flashback structure in the final episodes because I feel like the storytelling got weaker as a result. The last couple of episodes end up feeling rushed, and this was a great disappointment after the languid and expansive unfolding of characters and narrative in the first few episodes. Given how rich the storytelling was in those first few episodes, it seemed to me that the end was an odd mixture of story sprawl and a rush to tie up loose ends. So corners were cut, and in particular, a villain was given a face and a backstory that hinted at a rich and complex history, but he was introduced and killed off so quickly that it's hard to feel a sense of closure. By the end of the season, we've lived with these good guys and their failings for what seems like an awfully long time. It would have been more satisfying to have had some time to marinate in the close-up evil of what, by all indications, was a deliciously malevolent bad guy. So in the end, despite my enjoyment of the show, and especially McConaughey's character, I felt like True Detective fell short of delivering what it promised in its outstanding first couple of episodes. I give it a B, something like four stars out of five. But I'll definitely pay attention to the second season, especially in the hopes that some of the seeds that were planted in this first season will sprout and sprawl with more of the bigger mysteries solved. David Dalt is a radio and television producer. He lives in Chicago. He reviewed the HBO series True Detective. Thanks, Mary. You're welcome. Go ahead and take us out with the credits. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios here in Chicago. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keejan. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and Mary Morrison did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abel, David J. Dunn, and Alexander Badenoff. Our intern is Mary Morrison. That's me. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm Mary Morrison, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. That's great. Fantastic.